You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Crispin Starwell, good to see you again, my friend. Likewise, Dan. How you doing? I'm doing great, and um, welcome to everyone uh, in the Meaning of Life TV universe, and especially the Sophia audience. Uh, I'm Dan Kaufman, professor of philosophy at Missouri State University, publisher and editor of the Electric Agora and all sorts of other things, and this is Crispin Sartwell, professor at Dickinson College, am I correct? Correct. And sitting in his office that looks like the attic of a very cool house. It is the attic. It is the attic of a very cool house. <laughs> and um, so, Crispin, how how close are you to the end of your semester? Oh, I guess I don't know. Let's see. We got two weeks after this one, I suppose, and then finals. Yeah. How about you? Uh, I've uh, first week of May, and we're done. Yeah. And um, my finals, my finals won't be too bad. I, I try to get. I try to finish my classes before finals week. So like I give them their last test on the last day and stuff. So I'm not scrambling during finals week, but um, we're not permitted to do that. You're not allowed to do that. No, no. I don't think we are either. I think I just do it. I think I just do it anyway. Yeah. Well, that's so wrong, man. (laughs) You're the anarchist. Um, um, (laughs) All right. So Chris, today we're going to talk about um, actually, Two essays, uh, two of these, you've got this regular column spliced, and um, there's two essays that caught my eye and that are somewhat interrelated, they, and, they, and they address issues that are very close to my heart. So the first one um, is called Boys We Will, Surfi- Boys we Will Survive, uh, and then the other one is called America's Children, Our Treasure, Our Target. And um, I, you, you touch on a lot of issues that I've brought up myself in my own uh, public intellectual work, and um, uh, and so I, I thought I'd, I'd want to talk. I wanted to talk to you about about some of the issues that you raise. Um, Good education and such, eh? Yeah, education, um, childhood, um, the the sort of culture of safety that we're living in now. Um, the, the the girl boy male female issue, um, and and all sorts of and all sorts of stuff along those lines. Um, um, so maybe the maybe the thing to do is to to start with just one of them, and and then and then we'll switch to the other. They're pretty short, so that it shouldn't take us too long to sort of go through. And then sure. maybe maybe we'll wind up crossing back and forth from one to the other as the issues maybe sort of start to come together. Um, so let's start with the let's start with the boys one. Um, Maybe if you wouldn't mind, do you want to do you want to just give a quickie summary of of what you take your main point to be in that in that essay? Sure. You know, I, I've been looking at feminists and other sorts of critiques of masculinity for a very long time, um, and I agree with a lot of them actually, and I've tried to take a lot of them on board, perhaps. Okay, I, you know, or change some of my own gendering in accordance with uh, some of the critique. But I think that, like, okay, so just after the um, the Florida school shootings, um, Florida school shooting, there was a whole new discourse, as there has been in several of these kinds of cases or mass shootings about toxic masculinity. I mean, and, and so you know, in other words, we kind of blame a certain sort of gender identity for this kind of violence. 
and you know the the argument doesn't usually get much beyond um, all the perpetrators are men or most of the perpetrators are male um, and then we just slide right from there to almost like masculinity however we're going to characterize masculinity is a disease almost okay so this idea of toxic masculinity registers masculinity as a pathology and then you know and and so in some of this discourse recently or some like i was reading some op-eds along this line these lines in the new york times and the guardian and stuff and i was kind of getting insulted in a way you know i suddenly felt like my own gender identity was being attacked or stereotyped or blamed for, uh, you know, so much violence and stuff with, with, you know, kind of very flimsy arguments and then moving from that to treating toxic masculinity or trying to solve it or educate boys out of whatever that is exactly. Um, and then I just sort of, you know, I guess I, I'm thinking in some ways that like school curricula designed to change people's gender identity would be incredibly problematic, Hmm. you know, like maybe analogous to um, conversion therapy where I'm trying to change you from gay to straight or something like that. And what I really, you know, like you're going to need a lot more, information to justify something like that at a minimum. Yeah. So like if you, you know, if you think Nicholas Cruz, the shooter, uh, it, you know, the Florida shooter, if it, you know, if you're diagnosing him, his, the, the motivation or the, you know, causation of that in terms of his gender identity, I want to see some actual evidence of that in that particular case, for example. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, so like just sort of waving at half the population going, the problem is your gender identity. It seems like a sort of a crazily stereotyped and overgeneralized approach to these issues. And that just kind of suddenly struck me. You think, it, you think it's a little, I mean, I think you say this in the essay, but you think it's a little, it's not unlike when we noticed, you know, when we, when we, when we sort of make statistical analyses and show that, well, you know, most, most crimes are committed by black people or black people disproportionately cre- commit crimes. You are, you're, you're saying it's a similar kind of, um, a similar kind of generalization that you think is, is pernicious and probably unsound, right? Um, yeah. Um, although I guess, you know, it's somewhat more plausible in this case, although it's so overgeneralized. I mean, I think what was wrong with the, uh, the, the sort of stereotypical black criminal discourse had to do with who was getting arrested and who was being profiled. In other words, the statistics that were appealed to in that kind of thing were themselves unbelievably problematic. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, uh, you could, you could say that there's a similar thing going on here. It's just along yeah. a different vector. So, right. So let me give you an example. So, and I've, I've said something like this before um, in writing of mine. Um, in the case of look in in the case of blacks uh, black i mean there's this, there's a kind of an analogy right so one of the things that they would observe back when when we were having this conversation was that well yeah sure blacks are overrepresented given the types of crimes that we incarcerate people for that we right, sure. for but you know if we were to go after white collar crime as vigorously as we go over street crime you'd be hell of a lot more whites getting yes. arrested and a lot probably a lot of jews getting arrested 
And, um, um, well, no, I mean, seriously. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, 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 you know, Glenn Lowry once asked the question whether Jews are inherently um, um, uh, uh, fraudulent, right? Because people are saying blacks are inherently violent, yeah. right? And because they're overrepresented in certain kinds of crimes. Well, Jews are overrepresented in, in fraud cases, let's say, right? Um, or Michael Cohen, in, uh, you know, or something like that, yeah. Right, right. so... so you could say this a similar thing here. It's like, sure, if we're going to focus on violence, then boys come out looking pretty bad. But let's say I was supposed to, let's say we focus instead on being a passive aggressive shithead, right? I mean, girls might be overrepresented in that regard, right? So in other words, it's what we choose to, we're focusing on the the things that we're pathologizing and focusing on are are the things that boys do more. But Certainly, right. plenty of things that girls do more than boys that are pretty horrible. That if we focused on them, it would look like girls are are overrepresented in these. So I right. think it's not and as then, similar as you think, right? I mean, right. And then and then you know, it's the instant kind of effortless generalization to the whole population uh, that sort of is the structure of stereotype or whatever. Yeah, I do take seriously, you know, that that discrimination or this sort of thing or prejudice, even bigotry means somewhat different things when you're talking about sort of dominant versus oppressed groups and so on. Yeah. I don't want to just like say this is just like um, homophobia or it's just like, you know, uh, anti-black racism or something like that. I was only suggesting that the, the generalization may be equally fallacious, not that. Not think, that, not that the discrimination is equally, let's say, serious. Yes. Right? Um, um, that's Agreed. What I, was, I wasn't suggesting that, but it could be fairly serious. And I, I think one thing you, you see is maybe there's an ever greater. Uh, I'm not sure about this. I have to check this out. Uh, difference in the outcome, educational outcomes between boys and girls. Well, so so that's actually not that's actually not even disputable anymore. I mean, right, and I think maybe that has. Yeah, girls are doing much better educationally than guys are. Right. And um um so, but maybe boys are maybe that's partly because boys are actually being actually being discriminated against in K twelve education. Yeah. But right. even at the university, I don't know if this is happening to you, but the boys are disappearing from my classes. I mean my classes now are regularly sixty five, thirty five, seventy thirty girls to yes. guys. Um, and um um that wasn't the case. 20 years ago. Yes. It started. Um, so I mean, clearly could, something's happening, right? I mean, yes. Um, and you could see that as a good thing in a way, right? Like, uh, you know, girls are doing better. Yeah, it shouldn't uh, be a zero. It shouldn't be a zero sum game, right? I mean, it shouldn't be no. for the girls to do better. The boys have to evacuate. Right. Right. Um, and, um, and I'm a little concerned that that's the way it's presented so that, you know, all the attempts to kind of enhance the self-esteem uh, of girls and, you know, you know, encourage them to do more on their own initiative and to think well of themselves and to think that they can do, you know, have various achievements. You know, boys aren't getting that kind of treatment. In fact, and the message, because it's gendered, I I think partly, and partly just because the attitude toward boys right now, uh, is actually, you know, so the message is you the female person can do great. You can do anything. You can be anything. And if you're a boy sitting there hearing that relentlessly year after year, I wonder if you're thinking they're saying that I can't, you know what I mean? Or like, uh, or they're assuming that I think I can or something like that. So like the fact that we're sort of enhancing the, 
we're emphasizing the power of the initiative, the excellence of girls or whatever. It's hard not to see that as also a reverse attack on the boys. And I think maybe that is actually having real effects on how people are doing in school and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, look, it's not the, you know, we talked mentioned this a minute ago that it shouldn't be a zero-sum game. And so many of these things where we try to repair what we take to be social disparities, we do it in this kind of zero-sum game way. And so I'm thinking about, you know, uh, the way that the way that schools got, got status to, you know, the way schools satisfy the Title IX athletics um, requirements isn't by getting more people to be into girls' sports because, you know, it, it, it just doesn't work in terms of, you know, the attendance numbers and stuff like that for the most part on average. So yeah. what they do instead is they, de- they fund the boys, the boys' stuff less so that it looks like, so that it, it's more, so that it's, in other words, <laughs> one way to create parity is to sort of lower the side that's ahead. The other way to raise create parity is to try and raise the side that's behind. And it seems to me that there's no, there's no reason why you have to do it the first way, right? Other yeah. than things like effort and maybe uh, uh, money and political will. And, you know, you know, it's more difficult. It's easier to just sort of cut the boys sports funding. And then, then the proportion that goes to girls and boys is more even than it is to figure out how to, how the hell to make the girls sports more popular, right? I mean, it's. Okay. Um, um is that, does that really happen now? I, I guess I, I haven't really heard well, about that. It has. Now, 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 as it is the case, slowly the, I mean, the girls sports are getting better and better. And so in some of the cases, the girls sports are better, right? So, yeah. so at our school, the girls basketball is way better than the boys basketball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 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 I mean, way better. Um, and, uh, so, so that, I think that's starting, I think that the, the, the girl sports are just becoming more popular naturally, but for a while, the way that these title line requirements were being met was by them simply cutting. All right. Not, at, not at the university of Alabama, I bet. Uh, probably know? not. Yeah. yeah. I, I, <laughs> yeah it depends on where you're at. Now you slipped, I noticed that you, you were talking about this in terms of gender rather than in terms of sex. And, um, I mean, I know this is sort of tricky territory, and we're not going to solve this now. Um, are you are you on this view that gender and sex um, uh, vary completely independently, or, or or in other words, are you a pure social constructionist on gender, or do you think that it's more of a mixed? Ba- I'm of the view that it's a mixed bag. That I mean, certainly there are social yeah. constructive elements, but I don't. It would be very odd if um, sex and gender vary completely independently of each other insofar as there's something like a 98% correlation of sex and gender expression, right? I mean... <laughs> oh, I don't, I don't think so. Oh, sure. Uh, in terms of the number of trans people is like point, is like a tiny percentage of the population. Most people's sex match their gender expression. I mean, overwhelmingly, people's well, sex match yeah, their yeah, gender yeah. expression. Oh, I don't, I don't know about that at all. I, I think that for many people and for most people even... You know, gender expression is not, it's not purely one way or the other. I mean, there are many ways that many people kind of violate, uh, norms of gender self-presentation and stuff like that. Like typically even, you know. But, are, you, are you suggesting that more than a tiny, tiny minority of people are trans? No, I, but okay. I mean, here's the kind of approach I would take. Um, but that to me, that to me is look, the point, isn't? Isn't that the point? I mean, if only look, trans look, are only point three percent of the population, then that means that the overwhelming majority of people's sex match their gender identification. Well, I'll say this, man: go look at the trans statistics twenty, thirty years from now. 
Okay. What if it turns out that, you know, we're sitting here saying like 2% is trans or something. And, and in 20 years, it's 20%. Because I think that's pretty. percent of the people are going to be gender dysphoric? I think that I'm, I'm seeing, for example, many more uh, apparently uh, like gender non-conforming people all the time, including among my students and stuff like this. But surely and that's I, a ban- that's a bandwagon effect. That's not a matter of all of a sudden all these people are gender dysphoric, right? I but, mean, but a bandwagon effect. That's a that's a social construction effect. Do you see what I mean? Like, uh, I think gender is liable to. I mean, I think it has varied very wildly over, say, the last hundred years. Uh, and I think it's liable to do so more. I'm like, I'm not sitting here trying to decide how hormonal gender is or something like that. Do you see what I mean? Like, or what the biological basis is. But I am interested in the ways that gender is liquid. I, my own my own approach to it, like in entanglements and elsewhere, has been to centralize the aesthetic expression of gender. Things like the way you walk, you know, perhaps elements of your vocabulary. Uh, costuming, uh, you know, like I, I think that so without like, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm rather a gender constructionist. You're, you're far, farther on the, you're farther in the direction of construction. You're not a pure constructionist. You do think there's some relationship between biological sex and gender identity, or do you think it's completely, they completely vary, they vary completely independently? I, I'm not willing to say of any particular aspect of gender as it plays out uh, in, in social space right now that it has a biological basis. I, I don't think much rest. I'm, nothing rests on it for our conversation. The reason I'm asking is I want to be clear on the fact that the situation with the boys right now, you think you see as a um, – a critique slash attack on their gender, not on their sex. In other words, you, you, you're thinking of toxic ma- – in other words, what I was wondering is whether this is an attack on maleness right? and whether that's in part an attack on the biological dimensions of male, of male identity, right? Um, that, that's what I was wondering about, only because – it would be even more futile if that was the case, right? Right, true. I mean, I mean, right. you can socially condition people, but what you can't do is change their biology, at least not, unlike, right. not without Mengele-like experiments, right? Right, so, but I, I, I'd be wary of associating any particular personality trait that we associate with being a boy uh, with their biology. So, for example, if you say boys are naturally angry or naturally aggressive or, you know, are uh, naturally have ADHD or something, that almost goes that way. Or, I mean, I, I would just hesitate. Or how about natural? How about na- so, cause, so here we get down to something, right? So how about naturally more needing of the expulsion of physical energy? In other words, that boys have suffered much worse from the much more sedentary school day than girls have. And that, that is partly biological, right? I mean, I mean, the biologists will tell you that. I mean, this is not something that I just sort of invented, right? I mean, right. I mean, pediatricians will tell you that, right? Um, That boys need more physical activity in terms of a a school day's length, let's say. Right. 
Um, are you, you, know, are you saying you think that that's not true? Well, I would hesitate even on, on what pediatricians and biologists say about this. I mean, if you look at the history of that, it might not be so good. But you know what? I actually do intuit that that's true. And having raised some boys and girls or participated in that, uh, that's been my experience. But actually, the boys are more physically active uh, overall. That's what I've seen, I suppose. Here's the reason I'm asking this this way, because it seems to me that you could argue that the problem isn't so that in a sense the, the the attack or the critique or whatever you would call it on masculinity is already a second step in other words it's not and in this sense it's not really a prejudice right what happened is that all sorts of things changed socially such that and economically such that we yes. we need to train people for much more sedentary lives yes our school days thus became structured very differently and the boys simply don't thrive as much in that sort of an environment in part for physiological and biological reasons. And so they begin to be more dysfunctional in those environments. And now people start to say, okay, we, you know, there's a problem with the boys. In other words, I don't even, yeah. did, did this happen kind of by accident? Yeah, I think that's true. I, and I do think it's, it's a product of, of uh, economic changes among other things. Uh, and I, and I think like things like diagnoses like ADHD, uh, wildly over, over diagnosed. Yes. And I mean, and, and that, that is as much created by the, uh, physical environment and the disciplinary environment that you're imposing as it is by the, by the, uh, brain waves of the, uh, people. I mean, the, 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 you know, the fact that you can't sit still is defined as a dysfunction only within a situation in which you're training people up for their cubicles in the future, man. And so they've got to sit still or whatever. Right. And the girls do that more easily than the boys do is, what, do. is what it's overall. like. Overall. Right. Um, um, because I don't know about you, but if I compare my school day with my daughter's typical school day, I had way more physical activity. Me too. Both in school and out. Me too. And it seems to me that the elimination of that, I mean, my daughter now has to sort of has to slot time for her physical activity like adults do. Yeah. Um, because there's no, op- no opportunity right. during the school day. And after school, they're so ske- overly scheduled that there's no free play in the afternoon either. Really true, man. And like, you know, the schools have eliminated recess, just the, the most obvious thing or whatever. Like they, you know, because they're constantly tr- drilling you for the next standardized test, man. That's the only thing that counts. But what amazes me so much is that we want, we've eliminated all this physical activity and free time because we, we need to cram more in. But the students aren't coming out more educated than we came out. My daughter, the students are way less educated. They've read less. They've done less. Uh, they, you know what I mean? Everything. So I, you wonder what on earth are they doing during all this during all this time that they used to do recess and stuff, right? <laughs> I mean, are, are 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 college students entering as better writers than they once were? They're not better, as better anything. They're better not, readers than they once were. I mean, you know, it's it's it's. It's, and it could be more obvious, I say, if you're a college professor teaching freshman classes, that this is just not going that well. Even by their own tiny pinhead standards, that is, scores on standardized tests, they're not succeeding. 
Yeah. So I don't really understand like yeah. how you just continue with this approach or intensify it after it's been shown so elaborately to be useless, if you ask me. But yeah. anyway, yeah. And of course, it depends sort of what you're teaching too. Because when you're trying to teach philosophy and you're trying to get them to think independently, right, assess arguments critically, read texts uh, that are very complicated and stuff like that. Right. Follow extended lines of argument. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. You're seeing exactly what is missing, man, from these educational contexts right now. And I think yeah. it's, I mean, just, you know, each of us have a very limited sample, right? We're taking our own classes or whatever. Oh, well, no, if you've been teaching, and you know, I've been teaching for over, I've been teaching since 1993. You've probably been teaching longer. Yeah, since and the I've, mid-80s even, yeah. And I've taught both in, in a major metro area and in the lower Midwest. I figured out, I've had taught over 10,000 students. I think I have a pretty damn good sample. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, say like you're... It's you're, anecdotal, but it's a damn right. good anecdotal sample. I mean, it's not just like I met two guys yesterday and that, you know, I mean... You right, know. But like the trends that I might detect might have to do with just who Dickinson College is admitting. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, yeah, like it's yeah, hard to yeah, tell yeah. How, what's a society-wide thing. But, of course, I say a lot of professors that I know have similar impressions. I was going to say, do you have any professor – do you know any professor that would tell you that the students coming in now are better than they were 20 years ago? Because I don't. I, met, I haven't heard a single person say that, man. No, neither have I. I mentioned it. Yeah. Um, I mean, People should be taking that seriously when they're designing these secondary curricula and stuff. Well, know? we're going to get to that when we talk about your second piece. Um, um, I'm starting to just think that we just hate our own children. I mean, I, I'm just, I'm just really, I, I'm, I'm finding it hard to just not keep coming to that conclusion. I feel uh, like we oppress our own children. Yeah, just very weird. Um, 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 anyway, but I want to finish on the, the boy thing because this is really so interesting. And, um, I like the fact that we agree in some ways and don't agree in others. It, it, it's, it's interesting. Um, let me ask you about the politics of this, right? So, um, you know, we had a kind of a girls movement that is a movement to try to, to, to bring girls up yeah. educationally, socially, and all these other ways. Um, because of a perceived deficit, right? In other words, we looked at it and we said, look, you know, their outcomes are just worse than boys across the board. They're not allowed access to all these institutions. And, 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 yep. and in those institutions, they're sort of, they're sort of, um, devalued. Devalued and all sorts of things. Okay. Well, we're getting at the point now where it's very clear. It's demonstrable that in terms of negative social indicators, the boys are way worse off than the girls. I mean, every single major social indicator by which we normally deem a population as being troubled, the girls are worse off than the boys. And yet... The boys and the girls. Yeah. I'm sorry. The, yeah. yeah. And yet, we're still pushing heavily a girl movement. In right. other words, what I'm wondering is, are there any... Is there any level of negative social indicator that will finally decide that we're going to have a boy crisis... And that will do for the boys what we've done for the girls for the last 30 years. Or, or is there something about this that this is just, this, this hatred of maleness is just permanent now. It's not going to, it's not, no matter how bad the indicators are, they don't care because we don't want to help, we don't want to help boys at this point. Right? I mean, that's right, what I'm wondering. But, right. But I mean, I'd be a little worried about that in the sense that, okay, now we're going to have a program for boys. It could be, you know, 
I mean, it could be more of the toxic masculinity stuff. I mean, what ends up boys in prison, say, at, at a much higher rate or whatever. And then you say, well, we've got to sort of ameliorate or change their gendering or something like that. Yeah, I see what you mean. So uh, you're saying you're saying the program, we, we're not sure we want a program to help boys. Right. I, mean, <laughs> I, I need to know the content of it. Before. I mean, uh, I mean, what, and, and it's not that, I guess, it's not that you should not be worried about the self-esteem of girls and stuff like that. Or, um, yeah, I'm not sure what the right, right approach to that is, or, you know, it'd be nice if these programs had a more universal flavor, I guess, of, uh, you know, who you are is okay. And that includes if you're, um, you know, sort of stereotypically masculine. Well, but it does, it does impl- impl- implicate actual specific, educational pedagogical policy right so for example if for example one of the things i could see if we were to take the attitude towards boys education and achievement that we've been taking towards girls and that is saying okay in what way is our current institution disadvantaging girls now we're going to ask in what way is our current one of the things we might decide is that we need to return recess a much more substantial uh physical component to people's day that might be a decision that we would make Yes. Actually, we're as interested in boys' well-being as we are. My suspicion is that we're not really interested in boys' well-being. And so no matter how bad the negative indicators are, we're just uh, – uh, that part think, of us is saying, you know, let, let them disappear, you know? I mean, let, let, them, let them – you know what I mean? Of course, think of the social costs <laughs> of, of these negative indicators, right? Yeah. If it's violent crime or if it's, yeah. you know, whatever – or addiction, yeah. uh, et cetera. You know, it's not like the whole society isn't bearing immense costs if these continue or worsen or right. the gaps continue right. or worsen. Right. right. Uh, yeah. So I mean, there's, there's a mainstream conversation about whether we need men, right? I mean, I mean, I mean, pe- mainstream feminist thought, Hannah Rosen. I mean, all these people are writing these books. If you, you could not imagine the, the mainstream <clears throat> movement where the sexes were reversed and you had you know, mainstream male pundits talking about, do we need women anymore? Um, um, you know, they're just a pain right. in the ass and all they do is keep us down. Right. Um, um, you know, right. it, 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 it would be shocking. Right. I mean, you couldn't even imagine it. Right. And, and so I'm, I'm, I, I feel it, it like, almost sounds like a cultural genocide, right? We're like in a it, very weird place. It seems to me. Yes. Um, and it's yes. even weirder given the fact that women are the best off that they've ever been. You know, in other words, in other words, we're becoming the most radical when there's the least to be radical about, it seems to me. Right. I mean, and well, I the same thing well, about school shootings, right? About the school uh, stuff. Um, well, there's still a lot to be radical about. I, I think from the feminist standpoint, I mean, a lot. I mean, I remember, yeah. I can remember when the only women in offices were secretaries. Yeah, no, I understand. I understand. Um, it, it, it's changed. It seems okay. to me it's crumbs at this point. Oh my God. No, man. I mean, I think most power structures are still run by men, basically. That that may well change or is changing. I mean, I think the Me Too movement shows you and what, what has happened and what is happening to women uh, along those lines shows you that there's still a problem and all that. I mean, I, I wouldn't say, like, gender inequality has been solved, not at all. Um, although, you know, it's improved in various ways and stuff like that. People are a lot more conscious of it. Um but whether it has or not, when you're getting the point of like just diagnosing a whole 
you know, gender as a disease or hinting that they could disappear or be educated out of their identities and so on. Like that's, that's dangerous talk and it's, and it's, and it harms people, I think, you know? Um, yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, it is, it is, it's amazing that we've gotten to that point. And I do think that, I mean, in a way you get, you get, it's, it's like an understandable overcompensation. Do you see what I mean? Like, okay, so like we're dealing with millennia of gender oppression directed at women. And okay, we need an era where there's a backlash to that. I see that. But now how is that actual, you know, is, is that backlash taking a plausible form, a decent form, a form that's not harming people specifically or everybody in general, like really harming the society? Uh, I mean, I think that's all worth asking. Yeah. But, but I also want to like preserve a lot of the feminist critique of, you know, patriarchy as it is historically, but also as it still exists, I think. But, you know. Okay. Um, um, so let's, let's, let's shift over to the second piece and the boys thing might come back in. Um, 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 I could see it coming back in. Um, but let's shift over to the second piece. Um, which let me to just remind everyone, um, America's children, our treasure, our target. And of course we'll be linking, we'll link to these, um, uh, in the, in the link section. Um, why don't you do the same thing for that? Give us the briefest of summaries of what you, what you were trying to get at in that essay. Uh, and then I can sort of pick your brain on it. Sure. I say this has been a theme for me since I was a child. All right. Like, uh, but I, and I suppose that, you know, one way to put it is that schools can be a lot like prisons. Uh, and they're becoming more and more like prisons every day. I mean, and I think, I mean, I experienced my schools this way when I was growing up and I was expelled from the DC public school system, uh, because I couldn't stand it basically for those reasons. I found it. Uh, you, you were expelled from the whole system? I was. Not just from ones what? <laughs> yeah. They call me in and how do you get expelled from a whole system? Yeah, your son is no longer welcome in the District of Columbia public school system. Yeah, but anyway, um, I'd be kind of proud of that actually. <laughs> I, I probably sound like I am, and I probably am. Uh, yes, I am. And what did you do? What did you do? <laughs> I was a revolutionary throughout my junior high school and high school experience. Yeah, but were you like breaking stuff? Were you like not coming? Were you just like skipping? Were you getting into fights? I mean, what did you actually do? I mean, being a revolutionary, yeah, you could have just been walking around with a Che Guevara shirt. I mean, what? What? Well, there was that. What there was that. They would suspend you for that. Okay, so I mean, I, I started an underground newspaper. The first one when I was in seventh grade. Uh, oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, they don't yeah. like that. They don't like that sort of thing. No, and I, went to, <laughs> I got more and more. I, I let a student walk out in uh, ninth grade. Um, I did a lot of like sort of, I, I sort of uh, had a little revolutionary cell. And we did things like spray paint all the doors with revolutionary messages. Oh, so you actually vandalized the place. I, 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 me and a couple of my friends stank bomb Alice Steele Junior High School in D.C. Uh, with a solution of Drano and rotten eggs. I mean, we broke in in the middle of the night and soaked the place with the stuff. See, I knew I liked you. I really did. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, and I went back to deal 
<laughs> in, you know, five years later. And I still caught a whiff of that stuff. They closed the school for two days. Five years later, it still stank? Just a little whiff. God, you're a genius. But anyway, anyway, whatever. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, was, I was a hard student to deal with, and I felt that I was being continually oppressed, okay? And, it, and I was going to destroy it. Of course. You were. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> this is when I became an anarchist and how I became an anarchist, okay? Wow. Um, crazy. But anyway, yeah, kind of crazy. All right, so, but that... And maybe I've just discredited my own uh, thoughts about education or whatever. Uh, <laughs> all right. um, it, but um, it, they finally kicked me out for uh, 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 like uh, disrupting a assembly where I went up and I seized the mic from the principal and did some kind of rap. I can't even remember. And then I was running down the halls and they tackled me and all this stuff. You you're know? like an R-rated Ferris Bueller, right? I mean, you're like, <laughs> I'm a highly political Ferris Bueller, I guess. Uh, yeah. Like I'm hardcore quite, punk Ferris Bueller. Right? So, not, <laughs> not quite that cute though. But anyway, um, wow. So, right. But at any rate, like I, I sort of been concentrating on this, especially since, Columbine, you know, with uh, columns and stuff like this. And I see it in my kids' schools, too, where um, there's just ever more security. You know, just to take an example, like when uh, my stepson Vince was in uh, middle school, there was some little gun scare or something like that. One way they responded was by putting a box where you could drop anonymous denunciations in other words, you say, like, you know, like, Bobby made a violent remark or something like that. You know, like, that. this kind of culture, which is almost like an Eastern European dictatorship, communist dictatorship you or something betray- like that. You mean a betrayal state. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and, like, the ever more surveillance to the point now where I think they think they have to surveil the social media accounts of all their students – in case there's a threat and stuff like this, um, you know, that maybe internal uh, cameras so that you're under surveillance, you feel that you could be under surveillance at all times, uh, you know, bulletproof glass, metal detectors. Well, actually, police are actually encamped in the school. So, I mean, my daughter's school yes. has, has an office in the building that's a police office. And, um, you know, the school, a normal, and I'm using normal statistically, sort of a normal run-of-the-mill suburban high school today has the security profile that in my day you would have only found in the worst school in the South Bronx. Yeah, exactly. Um, 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 and uh, Yeah, and, and what were they doing to those kids in the South Bronx? And why were they doing it to them? Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I, I think... Well, in the South Bronx, there really was a huge crime wave. I understand. Um, 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 I went to schools what, like that. What's odd is that we're doing this at schools where there isn't any any major any crime wave, right? I mean, there's no there's there's no. I mean, Springfield, well, Missouri, ain't like the South Bronx in 1977, right? I mean, um, maybe you should. It has the security profile of the of a school in the Bronx in 1977. But right? maybe maybe you shouldn't have been incarcerating every teenager in the South Bronx in '77 either, man. Like, oh no! Listen, that may be. All I'm saying yeah. is, it's particularly odd 
that we're, we're employing well, measures that we used to only employ in the most crime-ridden kind of areas. Now, ubiquitously in every gen, any generic um, um, high school, I mean, that's sort of, we've ratcheted well, up kind of. Um, yeah, and what, what, I mean, one justification for that is the demonstration that this can happen anywhere. You know, like it's, it, and, you know, of course, most mass shootings are not in the South Bronx or in neighborhoods like that. That's you know, right. they are in suburban schools. That, That's right. You know, the big spectacular uh, events are not taking place in the South Bronx, but the daily right. drip in the South Bronx gets you a net much larger figure that, I know this has been commented on just how sort of racist the way this is all sort of covered, right? I mean, nobody gave a shit about kids getting shot until somebody shot up a white suburban high school, right? Then all of a sudden the whole country is up in arms about yeah. it and we're having a national conversation and everything. Um, 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 people have pointed this out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You said, But your article had an interesting angle about this and that is that you asked whether it's possible to sort of cultivate citizens for a democracy if their youth is being spent this way, could you talk a little yeah. bit about that con- that con- connection that you make in the essay? Yes, I mean, I, I mean, look. Basically, I think maybe I shouldn't put it this way, but like compulsory education, if you ask me, in general, is incompatible with democracy. Okay, so let's just start with that. Like, we're going to force you to attend so that we can sort of uh, mold the intelligences of tomorrow or the agents of tomorrow. Okay. That's one thing. But now if we put you in the middle of these quite totalitarian institutions, I mean, just explicitly totalitarian. All right. Like you're subject to search at any time. You're, uh, you know, there's, you can be interned in the, you know, uh, in another room, etc. you know, whatever it may be. Um, or like we have these massive security presences around the perimeter and things like this. Um, I think we're producing, and I think we, we see, maybe we see this in our students, I don't know. People who are rarely capable of independent thought, the people who are almost desperate to be told what to do at times, like just tell me what you require of me and I will discharge that, that they're anxious above all uh, to do what is demanded by the authorities and stuff like that. Now, yeah, that's a disaster for a democracy, man. Okay. That, that, those are the kind of people who are looking for a totalitarian leader who expect a structure to guide their entire lives and stuff like that. Well, even more than, than democracy, it seems to me it, it makes a liberal society impossible, right? I mean, um, 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 because that's dependent upon sort of, you know, a pretty strong, uh, individual agency right um um and uh although although uh, you know then again there's a lot of indoctrination in i guess politically liberal values that goes with that and i do think this is like a central function the way people are thinking of education right now is ideological training for all people or something like that i didn't mean liberal as in progressive i meant liberal in the classical sense right um (laughs) <laughs> that sort of depends because the whole idea is supposed to be a relatively minimal state. 
Right. And, um, and people who are jealous of their own rights. And a maximal civil society, right? I mean, a maximal sort of, you know, uh, where people are, where, where the focus is on individual actors and the, their voluntary associations, right? Right. That all becomes highly problematic if you've kind of taken all the sort of initiative and will and, and yes. precociousness out of, uh, out of people from a very young age. Right. And constantly subjecting them to this kind of, um, top down, disciplinary right. regime, right? Yes. I also want to emphasize that you you will produce kind of passive authoritarian personalities, I think, you know, uh, but you also are liable to produce real resentment and even violent reaction, okay? So, like, there, you know, a lot of people fit in fairly well within an authoritarian institution, you know, or are quite comfortable. Some people really are not. And the more you hit them with that, the more they hit back. All right. You know, so I think that you, you, you're sort of going to get two outcomes. Maybe violent rebellion or, you know, or just acting out like continuously or maximally and then capitulation. I, th- I, think, I think we're seeing both. In other words, I mean, it yeah. seems to me that what I'm seeing is a kind of, passivity and listlessness that to me is just completely incommensurable with youth. Right. Um, so, so, so some of my students basically act like a bunch of old women. Right. I mean, in terms of their, their, their attitude. Right. And then the others, the ones who react in the other way that you describe, it's way over the top. Right. I mean, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a level of rebellion that is completely dysfunctional. Right. I mean, I mean, way worse than, and so, so what I'm seeing is just, and maybe even self-destructive. Oh, yeah, a lot of that. Yeah, a lot of that. The self-harming, the the the, the suicide. I mean, it just to me. And even that might be a little gendered. Yeah, right? it, you know, I don't know. Like maybe more the people that just can't take it, or are boys. I'm not sure about that. Or yeah. Maybe, or maybe it damages the masculine ego a bit to be that subordinate. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So some some you get some male kids who are either like just straight rebels kind of, or they're just delinquents. In other words, they're just like, I'm just going to, no, I'm not listening to you at all. I'm just going to yeah. fuck the place up any way I can, anytime I can, who cares? Yeah. There's a kind of such, there's a, there's a disregard for self and for self in the, in other words, we were, we were pretty rebellious, but, but up to a point, right? I mean, we kind of know, knew the point past which it was, it was then no longer, something that you'd want to be doing. I mean, even as a rebel, um, uh, because it was simply just going to destroy you. Right. And, and, and I uh, that line a lot. Well, in your case, maybe not, but I mean, for most of us, at least it seemed to me, um, it was, it, it, I didn't see these extremes. I certainly didn't see the passivity. Yes. Um, um, you're absolutely right. I mean, my students don't want to have to, I mean, the worst thing I can ever do to my students is give them a free ride assignment. Yeah. They want to be told exactly. Yes. Almost sentence by sentence. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And, it, and this has to do also with standardization, I think, which is also basically an authoritarian approach to education. Yeah. And, I, I, and I agree with that. to make everyone uniform and stuff like this, which is just really unfortunate. I mean, it's, it's it, like the whole system is designed to destroy individual creativity. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you, so let me ask, so, so, 
I think this is indisputable. I mean, oh, I, I meditate upon I, when I think about my high school experience and my daughters. Now, you know, different places. One's suburban New York. One's suburban Missouri. Different times, right? Um, but it's almost like I mean, you might as well be different planets, right? I mean, I mean, it's it's so pronounced the difference. We had an open campus. She has a closed campus, right? There was no police presence at our high school, and no, none of us ever saw a policeman for, for the four years we were in there. My daughter's high school. There's a ubiquitous, constant police presence all the time. We yeah. had free periods. They do not. We were allowed to walk around the school without passes. They are not. Yeah. Almost all the socializing that took, you know, you want to know why these kids are on their phones all the time. You don't give them any opportunity to socialize ever. Right. Yeah, that's good. I mean, they have two minutes to get to class. They, they, there's no lingering in the halls. There's no, right. there's no sort of impromptu socialization that goes on. Right. Right. Well, you know, and when I was actually in school, the idea that people were telling me like when to go where by little bells and stuff like that, even that offended me. Right. You'd hear anything for it now. I mean, I mean, right. <laughs> right. But okay. Well, I had a different experience though. I went to an urban, uh, mostly black school. Um, also, you also had a close, your campus was closed. Yes. They, and they, and it got worse and worse as I was there. They, they the doors were locked. They started installing metal detectors even then. There were cops. And in fact, they hired people they called community aides who were bouncers that actually walked around the, the uh, school with like two by fours. They were bouncers. They were called community aides. I saw I, a friend of mine got beat, <laughs> beaten extremely badly by a, with a two by four while the whole school watched like from a, from the classrooms on the playground. It's like fucking Escape from New York or Mad Max or something. Right. It's just right. Like, it's no, it, it was quite like that. So, I mean, that, oh you know, I found that. So I was going to these, to an urban school that was sort of like what you're describing in the South Bronx. Yeah. 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 Uh, so my, my, my high school was a John Hughes movie. Right. I'm not, right. I'm not kidding. It was. Um, um, and, um, <laughs> Compared to my daughter's, I mean, it's just like, right. Um, so, so, I mean, I, I think it, this is undisputable. Um, um, the question is why? Is it all just because of school shootings? Well, that's what's driving a lot of this stuff is like this panic about that. And I don't know that they're, I mean, the first question would be like, is this an effective means of, of uh, stopping that? Apparently not, because yeah. since Columbine, we've been doing this. Yes. And it's not like the school shootings have stopped, right? I mean, right. Um, um, and every, I mean, one thing is that in that context, every student is a suspect, right? I mean, the, you, know, you sort of portray it. I was saying this in the piece. Yeah. You sort of portray it as like we're, we're protecting our children from external threats, so we've got to secure this building or whatever. But actually, you're protecting the students from each other and protecting the administrators and the teachers from the students. And so, like, every student is a suspect. Every student is a potential criminal. Uh, and they're being treated that way. Okay? So, you know, it, you could say that our children are our most precious thing, or all that. We've got to protect them. But they are also the threat that we are trying to control with all these security means. And, and it's indiscriminate, right? Like every student is subject to these security uh, things. Like Emma Gonzalez, and one of the Parkland students, um, you know, 
she called for more security in schools, as they all did, really, at, at the beginning. And then they started proposing specific measures, you know, like fencing and all this kind of stuff and more surveillances. And it, it occurred to Emma Gonzalez, like, okay, you're making, you're oppressing us. This is a prison. You're describing yes. as a prison. Yes. And she did, you know, and I, and I, and I think like we're willing to do, all, I, I, I do understand the thing, like when 20 kids get shot or something like that, what you got to do something, right? Like you, you want to do something. You can't just sit there and go like, and, and you're sitting, if you're a parent, you're going, yes, this could happen tomorrow at my kid's school. So what, you know, so it, but then the, but I'm just saying like the actual strategies they're using are unbelievably oppressive to the people in this, in these institutions and are affecting us overall uh, as a society in ways that we haven't really reflected on sufficiently. Yeah. I mean, you know, I have these sort of very, these mixed feel reactions to this sort of thing. On the one hand, you know, I, I have to, I keep reminding myself that statistically speaking, the number of school shootings and the deaths from them is insignificant. Um, um, and that, that when you make national policies, right, that yeah. has to be what guides you and not anecdotal sort of experience. On the other hand, I don't see how any local school district that has this happen can't. Yeah. Do do something, you know, significant, simply uh, because of the the sort of the the the, the human what, the normal human response, right? Yeah, yeah. Appropriate human response to this sort of what is you know a catastrophe, um, and so I I, I I almost sort of you know don't know what to do about it. I mean, in the sense that you know it's it's the remedy strikes, but it seems to me pretty clear that the remedy not only isn't working. But I would argue that once you get beyond the drama, the dramatic dimension of these terrible events, that remedy is worse than the, than, than the problem um, because the remedy is being applied ubiquitously. Right. It's, in a sense, changing the experience of an entire generation. Yes, I agree. Of a country's children. And the effects of that long term, I think, are going to be absolutely disastrous. I agree. I don't know, I don't know who we think is going to run anything. When everybody has been raised this has been raised yeah. this way, right? Yes. Um, Although you know, some people escape a little bit, like in their privileged private schools or whatever, that it could be a lot looser in various ways or more. Yeah, but how many of those are there? I mean, you right. know, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty small group. I mean, so what? What that's what you're saying is then the country's going to get even more technocratic yes. and more elitist than it already yes. is. Yes. <laughs> this is. Yes. Not, Seems likely. Which is but, not desirable, right? Um, right, but I do think we, we probably have to seek some kind of solutions too. You know, in other words, like, I don't think it, you have to go somewhere after the costs of these measures long term are much higher than the costs of the shootings themselves long term or something like that. You, you know, you have to take the shooting seriously and think about what this means and what, you know, so I, I think we need to reflect a lot more elaborately and we have to figure out whether there are ways that are sort of compatible with basic human freedom and teaching kids about basic human freedom or um, that will also make these kinds of things less frequent or less, you know, because I, I mean, I don't think you, one of the options isn't just sit there and go like, well, 
but the cost of doing something about it is too high or something, right? No, I agree that that's not a viable solution, right. even just politically, regardless of the merits. It's yes, not viable. Sure. You cannot tell a community that suffered this kind of devastation. Oh, well, you know, they, we're, we're going to just have to, you know, live with it. I mean, you know, I mean, you, you, it's just yeah. not a viable. I, no, I agree with that. Um, um, yes. At a human level, at a political, at every level, it's not a viable. Um, One thing I wondered about, and I, I argued this maybe with more oomph back, like, say, just after Columbine, is whether part, sometimes these these shootings are partly caused by the authoritarian atmosphere. That's what I was just going to ask you, because we talked before about how it seems to us that the, the current system that we're running is creating two kinds of very polarized kids, right? Incredibly passive, docile, and then yes, this very dysfunctionally rebellious, right? And so what I'm wondering is if almost the remedy is what's causing... Because, look, it all started from one shooting, Columbine. Now, that might have been a fluke. And we're now socializing more right. people to do that sort of thing, right, is what I'm wondering, right? Well, I – yeah. <clears throat> well, I mean, I, I think one thing – like, each of these cases is different. And you sort of I – ha- and I, I, I generalized too quick from Columbine when I was writing about it back at the time. But, I, I mean, one factor there, and I think in some of them, is that you're trapping these people together. You're compelling them. For example, like say, you know, you got a bullying situation or you got uh, a situation where someone has felt excluded for 10 years from all the clicks he wants to, or, you know, and then you're trapping them in the same building continuously but that's always been but that's always been the case i mean this is again one of those things that strikes me as so odd right because if anything there's much that's much less tolerated now than it used to be i mean when i was in high school in the 80s i mean bullying was an art form right i mean i mean there was no anti-bullying campaign there was nobody protecting anybody yeah true nobody you know you didn't have these draconian punishments for school fights you didn't have these and so that people were mercilessly, relentlessly picked on. And yeah. why the hell weren't they shooting up their schools in 1983? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean good point. Well, so, so it's just, I find it, it's, yeah. it's weird. It's just weird. Um, um, right. right. I, I, I think we, like, we struggle to make it explicable in any way, like, or just to provide some kind of explanation that makes it make sense, right? I mean, that's one thing that's so challenging about these. Uh, about school shootings specifically, or just the mass shootings. Like, why did this start, and why is this a pattern now where people just want to kill everybody and they take a crack at it, you know? and That's what I'm wondering, whether it isn't, it wasn't a trend. We turned it into one. In other words, we had one spectacular event, Columbine, and it was pretty unprecedented right it was pretty it did it didn't that sort of thing was not it's not like now where like when you hear right. it now it's just like oh another one right i mean yeah and so we had that we made these radical changes to how we how we function our schools and we thus inadvertently socialized people in such a way that there's more people who want to behave who are going to behave that way now right um um well how, how did that how did that happen you mean just like we we do we have security drill like people are so aware of the possibility kind of well like, hey, there's sort of a copycat thing but no I was thinking more about what you're talking about before about this very heavy handed disciplinary environment prison like environment creates two reactions it creates either yeah. 
a docile, passive, pathetic sort of person, or it creates a completely reckless rebel re- revolution yes. of, of, of a sort that is, it was not the sort of rebellion you had in 1985 or, or 1978 or whatever. Um, because th- then it wasn't reacting to as draconian a kind of a yeah. system, right? And so I'm wondering whether we just sort of produced these people through the remedy, right? That the right. remedy produced these people. Um, I, I, you know, that's speculative, but I think maybe that's a factor, right? Um, I mean, obviously, look, ultimately, it's going to be sociologists who are going to have to figure this out. Yeah. Right? I, mean, I mean, this is an empirical question. But um, it wouldn't be the first time that a remedy actually caused exactly the phenomenon that we're talking about. Um, yes. Um, 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 fucking the fucking drug war. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean that. I, I mean, you really right. created your own problem, right? I mean, right. I mean, I mean, uh, I mean, the unintended consequences just swamp every effect that you intended to have. You right. Know? You created a crime wave. Uh, supposedly in trying to address a crime wave, right? I mean, um, yeah. um, and here, I mean, you created a whole generation of shooters in your effort to, to stop shooters, right? I mean, um, you, you made everything so draconian <laughs> that the kids are either coming out like this or they're coming out com- like complete lunatics, right? Um, um, and uh, uh, it's just, it's just uh, I don't know. I, I feel almost like whenever these things happen, before we start implementing remedies, we have to have a serious social science investigation before we fucking do anything, right? Yeah, absolutely. And also just maybe some common sense and like some engagement with our own personal experience. Like how would we respond as children to these kinds of things or whatever? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it, yes. It, I don't know. So the last thing I wanted to ask you, um, um, because this um, – and this is a philosophical question. I'm not intending to apply this in the way that, that we, to what we were talking about in terms of how people react to these situations. I'm asking this purely philosophically because this came up. I was part of a panel discussion on, we're going through Missouri right now, a debate about concealed carry on campus. Um, that's supposed to be a remedy to school shootings yeah. um, at the university. And now, even more bizarrely, we're having this conversation at the high school level. So now my wife, who teaches high school English, is now seriously having to have a conversation about whether she should walk around her school with a pistol. Yeah. And which I, I think both are completely deranged um, um, in, my, in my view, are, are completely deranged. And I can, if you disagree, we, I could, we could talk about why. But I had, so I was part of a panel discussion about this. And, um, I was to basically taking the line that I think that an armed citizenry is incompatible with, with civil society. Um, um, that you just cannot have people walking around, people who are not law enforcement, um, walking around packing heat, uh, in stores and on, on streets and, 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 in classrooms and all this sort of stuff. And obviously the, and the questions that the queries that came from people that disagreed with me, um, and there were a lot. We're in southern Missouri. I, mine was the minority view. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, was that you know self self defense, self protection? You know, what if the police don't get there in time? All that kind of thing. And that then led to a discussion to where I asked them, "How safe is it reasonable to expect to be in a liberal society, in a free liberal society? That is." How much safety is it reasonable to expect in the context of the sort of society you'd actually want to live in? I mean, look, you could be 100% safe. We could create a system in which you're 100% safe. Um, 
Um, listen, uh, this has been yeah, done in right. microcosm, right? So I've, I, I, I lived on a block in Manhattan that was 100% safe. You want to know why? Because the Hells Angels headquarters was on that block. <laughs> I'm not joking. Yeah. You could walk down the street on that block at 3 in the morning and wave $100 bills and nothing would happen to you. Yeah, yeah. Everybody knew. The Hells Angels were parked on the street, right? Excellent security, yeah. Now, now, take- now, but the thing is you would not want <laughs> to live in a society like that. So I guess what I'm asking you, Crispin, in light of what we're talking about, about school safety and shootings all the how safe is it reasonable to expect to be in a liberal society? So presuming that that's what we want as a liberal society. Well, I mean, okay. The first thing I got to say is like, I am very confused on this, on, on guns. I, you know, okay. I, I mean, thought you'd be pro carry because of your anarchist. Right. Um, Offhand, I can't support gun control compatibly with my anarchist politics. Right. Um, I'm so uncomfortable with how many guns we have and how they get used and stuff like this. And I'm a pacifist as well. And I don't want a gun and I don't want to live in a society where it's all guns. I mean, I will say I live in very rural Pennsylvania where I think you're fairly safe to assume overall that most people are armed. I mean, certainly most houses have guns in them. Um, And there's not a lot of violent crime. I mean, but that doesn't mean anything, but I mean, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily experienced as a continual threat, the presence of firearms, even though you hear gunshots all the time because people are target practicing or hunting. Um, so I'm, I'm like really torn on this one. Like this, this is a hard one to feed into my politics. Uh, I guess my feeling is that overall though, okay. One thing I'll say, if the argument is that only law enforcement should be armed, Think about that a little bit and think about the way that firearms are abused by law enforcement as well as by, uh, you know, ordinary people or whatever. Well, uh, I'm, I'm, there's, hold on. Cause I am, I was, I am speaking at a, at a purely philosophical yes. level. My Fair argument enough. is that any system that's based on a roughly social contract logic, the state has to have a monopoly on force because the very rationale for making the social right. contract is that I don't fucking trust you enough right. to live in the state of nature with you. Now, right. why the hell would I agree to form the social contract and leave you walking around with a pistol? I would never agree to that. All right. Well, why would the state of nature to begin with, right? Right. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I, I disagree with the whole structure of argument, I guess you'd say. And, uh, I mean, why would I decide to give up my right of self-defense uh, to a state that is, you know, potentially warlike, potentially genocidal, potentially, uh, turning their monopoly of coercive force on their own population, which is typical. Okay. Now, well, look, look, you don't accept, but, but, you're an anarchist. But, you don't on the other question, logic. I just want to say that, um, you don't accept the logic. So I, I, I'm confused yeah. on the, can, are you still? No, I'm here. I'm here. So are you still, still there? Yeah. No, 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 no. We had a freeze. Yeah. Start again. Um, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, um, you, you were describing why you don't really accept the logic of the social contract. Yes, right. true. But yeah, right. go on. I mean, just let me say that um, I think often people want more safety than they can realistically have. You know what I mean? I don't know how safe we can be. I mean, basically being a human being alive on Earth is an unsafe situation. 
And we're not going to be able to pad ourselves completely from danger, which is not to say that we shouldn't take any precautions. But I really think that we are in a mood, and maybe this is just a little gendered, where uh, we're willing to uh, sacrifice rights, you know, autonomy to an astonishing extent uh, in order to feel safe. And, you know, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think there's a clear way to come down on that. Like, I think we all need, we all needed some protection, uh, of various kinds. And, but I think we, I think we should acknowledge the situation that we are basically not safe. That's our, like, that's a, that's an animal condition on earth. Okay. And, uh, and so like, if you're pursuing this illusion of perfect safety from crime or from, you know, oppression or from like, it's just not. And, and then the question is, you know, what, you know, what, what costs and what happens to people when safety is, you know, the overwhelming, uh, uh, Emphasis, you know, I mean, very dictatorial regimes, that's often what they sell security, you know, from outside threats, Absolutely. from internal threats, from different than your own or whatever it might be. And like, there's just limits to which that's even possible. And there's certainly limits to which it's desirable. And there's costs either way, right? And so, I, I, I mean, that's why I'm, fear, that's why fear mongering and hyperbole are so dangerous because. They create the impression of a, of, a, of a state of emergency yes. that then justifies all sorts of illiberal reactions, right? The war on terror was right. a oh. beautiful example. Okay, so the Patriot Act and then the uh, invasion of Iraq. And, like, what you're doing to supposedly make us all more secure, keep us safe, it, you know, you're killing hundreds of thousands of people. You're torturing people in violation of your own principle you're surveilling your whole, whole own population that's right you know? and and you know pretty soon you don't live in a place you want to live in anymore at all even if you're right. not in danger from islamic terrorism right 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 no i mean i mean this is this is you know this is why i object and, and i think that this is all this is non-political i mean you can see this across the spectrum i mean i feel the same way about the whole rape culture talk Right, you create an impression of a state of emergency that now justifies doing the most most illiberal things that you can imagine, even right. to the point of reversing, undermining the burden of proof, reversing the presumption of innocence. I mean, you do all sorts of things because you've convinced everyone that there's an emergency, right? And you know, as we know, during emergencies, I mean, the classic example of what happens during an emergency is that martial law is declared, and what does that mean? It means a temporary suspension of civil liberties, right? I mean, and it's and it's a very serious thing to do. And I would say that we are right now maintaining a posture that we are at least under five or six major national emergencies, right? Yes. So we're in a war. We're in a war, allegedly. Yeah. Um. According to Donald Trump, we've had a we have a we're living through a crime wave, right? According to radical according to radical feminists, we live in a rape culture. Um, you know, you could just go down the list, right? And, crisis in education, crisis in you know everything else. Right, so it's not a surprise that we're constantly taking an emergency posture, right? 
um, and doing all sorts of things that that don't make any sense if 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 you if you actually look at. I mean, one of the things I was going to say about this, the thing with the guns that strikes me as very odd, and that is if you look at federal crime statistics, there we are we have the lowest crime rates that we now that we've had in almost fifty years. Okay? Hasn't there been a bit of a rise the last couple? Yes, of Yes, but if you look at the graph, the rise. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. Right. It's like, it, okay. it's like this. And then there's like yeah. a little tiny little tail at the end. Right. right. Um, and yet at the time when we are by all practical purposes, the safest, this is the time now that everybody wants to walk around with a pistol. Why didn't everybody want to walk around with a pistol in 1978 when it was actually really dangerous? I mean, I remember when you could. Yeah, but it, you, we had no, we, there was no national conversation about everybody walking around with pistols. There was not. You know, this was not a major. This was not a major. We people weren't saying, "Hey, you know, give every school teacher and every high school a handgun." Sure. Sure. I mean, you know, every every, every professor sure. on a college campus. I mean, I just, I, I find it feels to me like we're 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 engaging very radical responses and solutions at the time you'd least think you would have them, right? When, when, because you expect that when things are at their worst. Yeah, sure. But things are not at their worst in any of these regards, right? That's true. Not even close. Yeah, yeah. Do you think it's because of media? You think, you think so? And now that social media, everything is getting amplified in a way that mm. distorts the perception of how prevalent things are. It's easier to sell a narrative of war and crime when with social media, because people are every single thing that happens in the country, you can get immediately reported to you. I, <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm hesitant to blame social media because it, 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 again, it's a little like toxic masculinity, and it, it's like a very, <laughs> it's a very amorphous uh, explanation. It, it explains way too much, way too quick, kind of. I think, um, and then then you actually the work would be telling the story of how you know. What, what the actual effects are in specific cases or something like that. I mean, and I don't know that we're much more sensational than we are. Like when we were like when people were covering the Manson murders or do you know what I mean? Like, uh, or but the coverage then was not of the sort. I mean, the argument is, is that so, so, so there's an example of this, that you know, the, so, the social psychologist, Jonathan Haidt. Yeah. Um, at NYU. Mm-hmm. He's actually argued that the reason for this va- radical change of attitudes amongst millennials from the millennials on is actually because of a, of a radical change in parenting uh, strategies and school strategies that happened right around 1980. So you can cut off. If you were born before 1980, you tend to not be of the sort of mindset that you and I have been discussing as true of young people. And if you're helicoptering, huh? Helicopter parenting is that the well, and the idea. Well, but the reason for it is what's interesting, and it's the media, right? So what Height says is that what happened around 1980 is as follows: there was a number of high-profile child abduction cases, okay, and you had the advent of cable television at the same time. All right. So what happened was, and and with that, with that, a much more intense and and quickly turning news cycle. And so he said, what happened was, an impression was given that this was rampant. And so it caused child raising strategies to be changed in a very dramatic way. Yeah. Is now what's the reason why kids are so anxious. Kids are so fearful. We're selling a constant message of fear. The Um, milk carton, the milk carton moment. And so, and so that's where I was sort of going was wondering whether, 
our media cycle is 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 creating a distorted impression of the prevalence of these things and thus the risk that everyone is actually in. I'm not sure. I'd, I'd like to see, I, you know, for one thing, I think you'd have to figure out direction of causation. I mean, do people's fears make it like, so they'll more likely to watch, you know, coverage of crime or whatever. I mean, if you really look at the tabloid newspapers of the 60s or 70s in New York, for example. Or they were like lurid, very lurid. Yeah. Yes, and focused on crime, the most spectacular crimes. And the um, and that was probably true of TV news in that era, even in another fewer channels. But those might have been a weeklies or, or, in other words, now it's literally every hour. Like, if somebody gets shot somewhere, you you hear about it on your phone like an hour later, right? That was not the case in 1975. And you might see it on video, almost live or literally live. But I don't, I'm not comfortable, uh, you know, just, a, you know, arguing straight from that to uh, these kinds of effects. I think it's got to be a lot more complex than that. You don't think the news cycle, the accelerated news cycle alone can explain the the weird sense of fear and threat that we live under. No, it's probably in there somewhere. Uh, but no, I don't think so. But, and, and I guess what I'm always worried about it with these kinds of arguments is that you're going to go pretty quick to let's control the media as a way to, to control uh, these events and so yeah. on or control yeah. attitudes. Yeah. And Actually, in your essay, you compare blaming the media to blaming toxic masculinity, right? I mean, yeah, actually, I, well, maybe I do, yeah. yeah. But anyway, <laughs> and I walked right into it. I walked right into it, man. <laughs> like, you're right, though. I mean, that, that, type of, it, that type of thinking is so easy, right? You feel- right we're, we're, looking, we're looking for an explanation, right? You, like, you need an explanation. Do you think there might just not be one? I think it might be so multifactorial. The causes are so diffuse that there's not, there's no narrative you're going to get. Is that, is that? I mean, I think that if, if you're going to develop a narrative, it would have to be extremely complex and it, it would include media effects, probably. And of course, uh, it might include whatever factors lead to changes in parenting or like the extremely complex factors that have changed education, uh, you know, including economic transformations and so on. Like, I, you know, like if you're telling us, if you're really trying to give an explanation, I think it's going to be like a lot of real hard work on all sorts of features of culture, trying to figure out what causes what, you know, like, I don't know. But I, so, but I'd be a little worried about these like sort of explanations that go like social media. Okay. So, because sometimes the structure of the argument is pretty like, okay, what's different now than, to then, then 1995 and you go, Oh, Facebook, you know, okay. So that explains whatever's different now than 1995. And, yeah. you know, like I think, and, and it's not that that's not in there, you know, it's, but it's like, I just think you're going to need a really, it's being, it's, being, it's, it's a wild oversimplification. And then you think what happens inevitably is then we just crack down on whatever the yes. thing is. Yes. It's happening right now, actually, uh, you know, with Zuckerberg, has turned from genius to uh, scapegoat, you know, and now it's really going to happen very quickly that we're going to try to control social media, I think. And then let's see if that has, you know, let's see what the effects of that are. I mean, I'm not sure, man. Yeah. 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 Well, Crispin, this is uh, really interesting. Uh, I think it's very important. Uh, we're going to link obviously to the two, to the two essays. Um, 
And um, uh, I thank you very much. Thanks, man. I enjoy these, man, quite a bit. Oh, I, I love – this is my one of my favorite things to do. I won't You're lie. You're good at this. You're good at this. You are. <laughs> this to me is like – this is the only way now at this age, at this point of life, that I can do what I used to do in college with my friends. Yeah, I feel this. You yeah. know what I mean? I don't have any way. <laughs> You're my way too. Well, you do now because. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, thank you so much. Good luck with your finals, and um, I'll be in touch with you soon again. All right. See you soon, Dan. All right, my friend. Take care. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Meaning of Life TV. Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.